Death in the Pot. The story is told of a group of hungry travelers who arrive in a small village with nothing but an empty cooking pot. We're hungry, they explain to the villagers. Do you have a bit of food that you could share with us? Oh, no, replied the villagers. It's been a, it's been a bad year, and, and we don't really have enough food to eat for ourselves. You'll have to go somewhere else for some food. So, undeterred, the, the travelers go down to a nearby stream with their cooking pot, and they fill it with water. And as soon as they have it full of water, they drop in a large stone and place the kettle over a fire. What are you doing? One of the villagers asked. Oh, we're making stone soup. It tastes wonderful. Actually, it would be even better if it would have a, just a little garnish to it. You know, I think I have some carrots in my house, replied the villager. We can add those to it. She hurries off and in a moment returns with a handful of carrots. As she's coming back, another villager stops by. What are you doing? they ask. We're making stone soup, is the reply. It tastes delicious. It just needs a bit of seasoning, is all. Well, I think I have some at home, he replies, and a minute later, he returns with some seasoning. One by one, each of the villagers comes by, and curious as to what they're doing and what is this new kind of soup. And each time, one of the villagers contributes a little bit of food, a small ingredient, until the pot is filled with delicious soup. Finally, the travelers remove the stone, and the villagers gather around and enjoy a delicious feast with the travelers. We laugh at the story, but the, the moral is obvious, you know? When we think we have nothing, if we can work together, sometimes we'll be amazed at what we can come up with. You know, it's hard for us to imagine being in a situation where I have no food and no way to get any food. But we find throughout history that that has been a, a situation that many, many people have found themselves in. Just look even to the situation in Texas or in Florida or even in Puerto Rico now in the past few weeks. How many of you have seen the pictures in the news of the grocery stores and aisle after aisle of empty shelves because the trucks are not able to get in and people are going hungry and starving because they're not able to get food. Even if they can get to a grocery store, the stores often do not have even the bare necessities. With our advances in technology, refrigeration and transportation, we don't worry if there's a little bit of a drought or a change in the weather patterns because if one crop fails in one area, we can always get food from another area until our infrastructure fails. So and we have plenty and we find it difficult to sympathize with someone who has little. Or then if we have only little, we think it's easy to think that we have nothing extra to give, nothing to contribute to help a stranger in need. One of my favorite Bible stories is set in a situation very much like this. We find it in 1 Kings chapter 4. Sorry, 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, and if you'll turn there with me, we can look at this story together. The story is set in a time of famine. In fact, we read here in 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 38 that Elisha returned to Gilgal 
and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. Now, this is a time, a time of great trouble in Israel. A time of famine. The crops had failed. And they couldn't just go down to the corner grocery store and buy more food. They were literally starving. The people were starving. But you know, it is in the times of our greatest extremity that are the times of what, say it with me, God's opportunity, right? Our greatest extremity is God's opportunity. You know, this was a time of famine, as it says here in this verse, not just a famine of physical food, but a spiritual famine as well. This was a low point in the history of the children of Israel. The children of Israel had wandered far away from God. The kingdom was divided between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And although Jehoshaphat was comparatively maybe a good king in Judah, the king of Israel at this time was none other than the infamous king Jehoram, son of Ahab. And we find that in, if you go back a chapter to Second uh, Kings chapter 3 and verse 1. Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin and did not depart from them. And you find this theme over and over in the later kings of Israel. He did everything that, that Jeroboam had done, only worse. And he kept on doing the things that Jeroboam, and Jeroboam was an idolater, and the people had wholesale sold themselves to idolatry. And even though maybe they would work small reforms and there might be small reforms, by and large, the kingdom of Israel had fallen into apostasy. But God did not forsake his people. God sent the great prophet Elijah and through him he had worked a great reformation on Mount Carmel. And then after Elijah was taken to heaven, Elijah, his servant, took up the work of Elijah. But unlike Elijah, Elisha was not so much on the mountaintop. Elisha was not so much in the public view of the entire nation like Elijah was, calling fire down from heaven. Elisha's ministry was one, perhaps the closest of any of the prophets in the Bible, to the ministry of Jesus. Going about doing good and teaching and showing people by example what is it like to be a servant of God. And though the nation of Israel was in apostasy, yet there were few. There were a few who decided and who tried to follow the true God. They called these men the sons of the prophets. And they would live together many times, sharing their resources and learning and studying at the feet of the prophets like Elisha. And that this is where this story is set. You see here that Elisha returned to Gilgal. There was famine in the land, and it talks about the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. Now remember, there's a famine in the land. They didn't have enough food to eat. And he, Elisha, said to his servants, I'm reading here in, in 2 Kings 4.38 again, just so you know where I am. 
he said to his servants, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. What are we going to eat? But the prophet says to put on a pot. And so they put on the pot. They didn't have all of their vegetables and all their grain. They, They were running out of food. And so I can imagine that these these men were, were looking around. They didn't, the gardens have failed. So they go out into the bush, into the, into the weeds and they started wandering around and just looking for anything that they could find that might possibly be edible. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. And as one of these men was going out and searching, well, we find it here in verse 39. So one of them went into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it a lot full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot, though they did not know what they were. Now, the wild gourd is a, um, it's a native plant to Palestine, to the Mediterranean region. It's actually closely related to the watermelon. If you were to see it, it would look like a, a watermelon vine with a bunch of really small watermelons on it. It actually looks pretty edible, especially if you were hungry. You'd think it's pretty, pretty good. But it's extremely, extremely bitter. It's not edible. Um, people may have tried to eat it before, but you could, it's so bitter that you couldn't eat it. So this, this, uh, man, this, this young man found this, what looked like food. He brought it back and he sliced it up into this stew. Even though he didn't know what it was, it looked like food. And in verse 40, then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. This one lapful, as it says, one collection of gourds that they had sliced into the stew spoiled the entire pot. It was so bitter that it was impossible to eat it. There is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. And so, in verse 41, he said... Then bring some flour. They brought him some flour, and he put it into the pot and said, Serve it to the people, that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Now let me ask you, friends, is there anything magical about a bit of flour? If you have a whole pot, I'll ask Christina here. Christina's good at flavors. If I have a whole pot of bitter stew that's full of poison, and you put a little bit of flour in it, is that going to counteract all the poison in the stew? No. Now, but God worked a miracle through Elisha, and they were able to eat the stew. Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. And that's where the title of this message comes from. Death in the pot. I don't know about you, but I'm always touched by stories in the scripture that have to do with these schools of the prophets, these sons of the prophets Perhaps it's because in so many ways I can see so many parallels to situations that I have been in and my family has been in as I was a child and growing up. When I was young, my family moved from place to place every few years. Uh, my father taught in various Adventist schools. Um, even for a while, we lived at a, at a self-supporting institution, at a self-supporting academy. And if you know anything about the uh, self-supporting work, um, if there's anything in common with all self-supporting institutions, or most anyway, is that you don't get paid a whole lot of money to live and work there. You, you, 
kind of live almost in a communal style of living. Not, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but but you kind of as you as you're limited in resources, you pool you pool your resources and work together for the good of this cause that you're working for. And then there was the year that Christina and I that that I spent a year canvassing, and I'll I'll admit I didn't earn a whole lot of money that year, but it was all right. We were doing ministry. And of course, now Christina has Christina's kitchen, and we don't all earn a whole lot of money at that either. But <laughs> but it's a ministry. We're 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 pooling our resources and working together for the cause that God has sent us t- to work in. And and you become content to live on little and to focus not on yourself, but on the growth of God's kingdom. And it was the same way with these these young men, these sons of the prophets. They could sit here and they could look and they could see that in this great land of Israel, almost everyone was bowing the knee to Baal. And they were, as it were, the faithful few, remaining worshiping God, not cloistered in a commune, but as it were, missionaries to God's people to be a light in a darkened world. Friends, have you ever felt like you were one of the only ones really striving to serve God? If we look at Christianity today, I'm talking about all of Christendom, do we see that by and large, I'm not saying this in a, in a mean way, but do we see that by and large Christianity has fallen into apostasy, has fallen into idolatry, has forsaken the word of God and put in its place the traditions of men. Yes, my friends, we do see that. In fact, in Revelation, we see that the church, the majority of the Christian church, is referred to as Babylon, is referred to as a prostitute and her daughters. And we as Advent people, Seventh-day Adventists, are one of our messages is to call people out of this apostate system of worship. Just like in ancient Israel in the schools of the prophets, so we as Seventh-day Adventists have a special mission and a special purpose. But even within Adventism, do we not often look, and it's easy to criticize, but do we not often look and see and with sadness the compromise and the, the Laodicean attitude, even within many within our own ranks? And so it is that we find ourselves many times in a situation very much like the sons of the prophets. Is there any in Israel that has not bowed the knee to Baal? That is what Elijah asked. And Elisha was a leader of these small groups, the sons of the prophets. And so they're they're in this famine, in this situation, and they're pooling their resources and you know when you have lots of stuff, when you when you have plenty, if you ruin a batch of soup, ah, well, throw it out, let the dogs eat it, we'll start over. They had put everything they had, and that's the point I'm, I'm getting at. They were poor. They were at the last extent of their resources, and they had probably put the last of their food in this pot. And it wasn't just one person that was making the soup. It was probably everyone in the, in the entire place that was contributing everything, like the stone soup story that I told them before, contributing everything they had to this pot. And one person, 
one person picked a bitter gourd and ruined it for everybody else. Okay, you get where I'm going. We're working together with a small group and we feel like perhaps the only one of the only groups that really upholds the Bible. And one of my brothers goes and throws poison into my food. I'm talking about stuff that really happens. <laughs> and what is that temptation to do? What did he have the right to run and, and we and our tempers flare and 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 we go against our brothers and sisters like this. And there's death in the pot. And 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 we call out to our leaders, oh man of God, there is death in the pot. What we've all worked to make was ruined by one mistake. And maybe it's food or maybe it's maybe it's our church family. Maybe we're all working together, we're trying, we're reaching out in our community like we're supposed to do, and we finally, after months and months and months, we get, we come close to someone, we make a friend, and we bring that friend to church for the first time. And we walk through the door, and one of our brothers or sisters says, um, you know, you're wearing earrings, and that, you know, and, or whatever it is. I'm just picking on this, something that's happened before. And don't you know what the Bible says about wearing earrings? Or whatever the case may be. I'm just picking on. Uh, and, and the first time they walk through the door, their attitude is poisoned. And, and, and that friend that we've worked for months and months to share the love of Jesus with is chased right back out the door of the church faster than they came in. And we have a domino effect. Then we have the the blame game, and it, and it, one thing falls, and the next thing falls, and the next, and pretty soon we all become. It's so easy to start fighting amongst ourselves. We who should be working um, of all people, who should be working to spread the gospel message, we start fighting amongst ourselves, and there is death in the pot. And friends, so so many times we forget who we're working for. Are we just a club? We get together and talk to each other and make ourselves feel good? Or do we serve a loving God who is not only loving but who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and has far more resources than we could ever imagine? Is our God dead? Is he poor? Is he broke? Is he bankrupt? Or is he capable when we reach the end of our capabilities of taking the death that is in the pot and turning it into food for you and for me. You know, I find this so true today. When we give our very best efforts, we all, church family, we work together like the stone soup. We each contribute a little bit even though we think we have nothing, we contribute what we have and we make something delicious. But, but there's a problem because because of the sin that is in this world, someone inevitably brings a poisonous gourd and adds into the mix and there's death in the pot. We've done our very best and there's death in the pot. But Elisha didn't blame the poor man who had gone and done his best and gathered the wild gourd. There was no blaming going on. He didn't 
say, okay, everyone, let's cast, let's cast lots and figure out who did it. What did he say? He says, bring me some flour. We find that here in, in verse 41. Bring me some flour. Bring me some meal. What do we use flour for? Making bread. Instead of blaming the one who caused the problem, he brings the only remedy that could be brought. I want you to turn with me. Hold your finger there in Second Kings, but I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6 and verse 35. This is another story, a story of Jesus with a woman who had come to the end of her rope. A woman in despair. Jesus says to this woman, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Just as Moses turned the bitter waters of Marah into sweet waters, just as Elisha healed the waters in the spring of Jericho, and just as he turned that bitter pot of death into a delicious pot of wholesome food. Friends, Jesus Christ can do the same thing in our church today. He can do the same thing in our families today. And yes, friends, he can do the same thing in our own hearts and lives today. Friend, do you have a situation in your life that has turned into bitterness Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's a situation at work. Friend, come to Jesus. Bring it to Jesus in prayer and watch the miracles that he can work. Lastly, friends, I love the illustration in this passage of the beauty of the gospel. Sometimes in our own lives, we come to the end of our rope. We've done everything we can. We've used every last ounce of our own resources only to realize that it's not enough. We got nearly there and then we ruined it all and fell back into sin. We've struggled to keep the law and we know we've fallen short and we're faced with certain death. We're starving, spiritually starving. And the only thing that we could hope to satisfy our need the works of the law. It's filled with nothing but the penalty of death. Friend, look to Jesus. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Friends, Jesus can take the death in the pot and turn it into life for his glory everlasting. We have to come. We have to bring everything that we have to put in that pot, but realizing that it's not enough, that it's only death that we can put in. But be, by adding the bread of life, Jesus transforms it into a full and new life. Friends, the gospel isn't a passive thing. We can't sit and do nothing. We have a part to play. But once we've given everything, once we've come to the end of our resources, 
That's where the power of God has only just begun. Loving Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, we come to you bringing nothing, bringing all that we have, yes, but knowing that it is nothing but death in the pot. But Lord, we know that by your grace and by the power of your living word, that you can transform that death into life everlasting. We pray that you will do that in each one of our lives now and in our church family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.